Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots, but AI is more than a novelty. Businesses around the world have found ways to harness its potential, like spotting inventory shortages before they happen or supporting supply chain management. And it's very possible that your business could benefit from AI integration too. Unlock the potential of AI and discover even more possibilities with SAP Business AI. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. We're doing two decoders a week now. On Mondays, we're going to have our regular interviews, but our new Thursday episodes, like this one, are all about deep dives into big topics in the news. And for the next few weeks, we're going to stay focused on one of the biggest topics of all, generative AI. There's a lot going on in the world of generative AI, and maybe the biggest thing going is the increasing number of copyright lawsuits being filed against AI companies like OpenAI and Stability AI. So for this episode, we brought on Verge Features Editor Sarah Jong, who is a former lawyer just like me, and we're going to talk about those cases and the main defense the AI companies are relying on, an idea called fair use. Let's back up a sec. All the big generative AI models from every company are trained on huge swaths of data that are scraped from the entire internet. And big media companies like the New York Times and Getty Images have filed copyright lawsuits against those AI companies, saying that basically they've stolen their work and are profiting from it. A claim that amounts to straightforward copyright infringement. I made something, you made a copy without my permission, that's copyright infringement. If there's one thing to know about copyright law, it's that it's still very much rooted in the idea of making copies and regulating which copies are legal and which aren't. And since computers can't do anything at all without making copies, copyright law shows up again and again in the history of computing, and especially the history of the internet, which allows anyone to make and distribute perfect copies faster than ever before. But there's a check on all of the control that copyright law provides, fair use. Fair use is written right into the Copyright Act, and it says that certain kinds of copies are okay. You can quote things. You can quote books in commentary about books. You can run clips of movies in video criticism of movies. And you can make copies of articles to share in a classroom. There's a long list of these things in the Copyright Act. But since the law can't list or predict everything that people might want to do, it also has a four-factor test written into it that courts can use to determine if a copy is fair use or not. But here's the thing about the legal system in general, and fair use specifically. It is not deterministic or predictable. I know we have a lot of engineers and product managers in the decoder audience, and it's tempting to think about the legal system like a computer, that you put in some inputs and you can predictably get some outputs. But that's not how it works at all, and it is especially not how fair use works. Every court gets to run that four-factor fair use test any way they want. And one court's fair use determination isn't actually precedent for the next court. That means fair use is a very vibes-based situation. It's anyone's guess how a lot of copyright lawsuits are going to go. Many of them feel like a coin flip. And when you add in the amount of hype, uncertainty, and money that comes with AI, it gets even more complicated. So I wanted Sarah to come on and help me explain what's going on to everyone. Sarah is one of my very favorite people to talk to about copyright law. I promise you, we didn't get totally off the rails nerding out about it, but we went a little off the rails. But we had to start at the start. The first thing we had to figure out was, how big a deal are these AI copyright lawsuits? It feels like there's sort of a 
potential extinction level event on the horizon. It's pretty weird because all the lawyers seem to think so. And for whatever reason, like the CEOs don't seem to think so. My read when I talk to the CEOs is that they think this is a money problem, that something's going to happen and their general counsels and their policy people are going to walk through some court cases and maybe get some policy changes passed in Congress and they'll have to pay some money, but it will be fine. And in the end, the money is always fine. You are at extinction level event. I'm feeling like the noise I'm hearing indicates extinction level event. Why do you think it's that bad? I mean, like, we lived through Napster, right? Like we, like it's, it, which is weird because these CEOs also lived through Napster, but maybe they didn't, like maybe they're from another universe. But yeah, like it's the level of copyright direness in these cases, the effects on existing industries, plus how applicable law is lining up. It's got Napster vibes to it. And when Napster happened to the law, entire companies went bust, entire industries went bust. Copyright changed forever in a way that was not great. It was an extinction-level event, and AI has this sim- a similar thing going on there. They got sued. That went all the way to Supreme Court. The Supreme Court made some changes to copyright law in that case. When most people think about Napster, I'm pretty sure they think about Justin Timberlake playing Sean Parker in the movie The Social Network. And they might think about the idea that a company that just quote unquote facilitates piracy is a bad idea. They do not think about the Supreme Court eventually issuing changes to copyright law wholesale that we now live inside. So explain what you mean there. Quickly give people the capsule summary of Napster and Grokster and what happened to the law in those cases. Yeah, we exit one era where we had just sort of softened fair use so that it was okay for people to use their VCR setups to like record off the television. So that was the era we were exiting where it was like, oh, okay, so like there's, there are these new technologies and people are going to use them for themselves in these like, you know, pretty benign ways and that's okay. And copyright doesn't have to restrict that. And then we enter into sort of the Napster era where they go, everyone can be a pirate now and that's not good. It could destroy this industry. So now we have to change copyright law in a way that we've never seen before. That's a really good example of something I want to hammer on as we cover the AI companies. The concept of fair use was enshrined into federal law in the Copyright Act of 1976. It's almost 20 years before the consumer internet came along. So when digital culture hit and companies like Napster arrived on the scene, we had no idea what was going to happen. No one in 1976 could predict Napster, and the record labels and Napster had to go to court to figure out if Napster was legal at all. Turns out it wasn't. Napster basically met its end in 2001, when a federal appeals court upheld a ruling that determined Napster, by facilitating the copyright infringement of its users, was also liable for copyright infringement. A few years later, another peer-to-peer file-sharing network called Grokster went all the way to the Supreme Court with a very similar lawsuit. Grokster was a different company, and the same federal court that had shut down Napster said Grokster was not infringing copyright law. But because Napster was the forerunner of a whole bunch of file swapping platforms ending in stir, Grokster ended up being painted with the same brush. And that left the Supreme Court to make a big decision that had major ramifications on everything that's happened online in the last 20 years. Ultimately, the court said if you market a tool for people specifically to do copyright infringement with, you are liable for the copyright infringement that happens as a result. That is a judicial construction. That idea had to be invented, and there was a lot of disagreement about it at the time. You can go into the history and drama of that case, the cases that came before it, and the cases that came after it, but the point I want to make 
is that no one knew what was going to happen. The Supreme Court had the power to effectively create or destroy a company and an entire industry based on its understanding of copyright law at that time. And at that moment, they said, this is illegal. And those companies basically disappeared. And that is the extinction level event that Sarah is describing. The justices might say, well, actually, all this is illegal. And then the entire AI industry might disappear. So now we come to the AI companies, which are also making a bunch of copies. And the argument that is getting made everywhere is this is something called fair use. Yep, we we acknowledge that we've made the copies, but we've done them in a way that makes it okay because of something called fair use. Can you quickly explain what fair use is? So fair use is the escape valve for copyright because it is wild for the law to restrict other people's speech based on whether or not you've published it in a book or set it on a tape or whatever. And so you have these four factors in the law. You can look them up, 17 USC 107. They're like intertwined. There's not really like a clear logic behind how the four are like lined up. And in fact, if you go and look at the cases where fair use is implicated, you can see the factors being weighed very differently per case. You don't even need to meet all four, depending on the use. It's not super clear. It is meant to be very flexible because speech is important and you want to have a really flexible escape valve. But that also means it's not super predictive in cases of new technologies. So AI companies are getting sued. The New York Times, for example, has sued OpenAI. And the New York Times' complaint is very compelling because it has all of these examples where OpenAI will just spit out word-for-word recitations of New York Times articles. They've obviously copied the information. OpenAI's response is, yep, we've acknowledged that we've made these copies, but that copying is fair use. We're allowed to do it, and we're going to show it to you by going through the four factors. So the first factor is purpose and character of the use. What does that mean, and how do you think it applies in this case? So what's the difference between, for instance, a middle schooler opening up the New York Times and like quoting the New York Times in their book report about soybeans <laughs> like right like it's just like you you it's a source so why not go to the new york times to like get the definitive information on some news story people are also going to open ai against the advice of their teachers to like copy paste a paragraph about soybeans for their book report right it's like the purpose and character of the use including whether such use is of commercial nature or for nonprofit educational purposes. Yes, OpenAI is ultimately going to make money off of this thing. I mean, they, they charge you for GPT-4 right now, right? So right. you pay them a subscription and you get access to someone else's information. That seems tough. Right, it is tough. The big missing word in this that's sort of been added over time through the courts actually is that they're looking for transformative use. That's just something that's evolved over the years. If a work is transformed by the copying, there's like a stronger argument to be made that it was a fair use. So you've got like, you know, a parody, you've got mashups. That's like a classic one. If you're like doing a YouTube like clapback and you like, have a little clip of the person you're clapping back. Like that's a transformative use. But you can kind of tell from all of those easy examples I used, you can definitely think of a time someone got in trouble with copyright law for doing exactly that, which goes again to like fair use is, is kind of a funky thing where like, because it's case by case, even if it seems like it's easy, you can still get in trouble. 
might win in the end, but you'll still get in trouble. If you get into like a much more difficult scenario, like open AI, something that has never been to court, period, you're up-leveling the difficulty to another place. And I feel like in the case of open AI, whether or not copying all the information on the internet so that a robot can spit it back out at you in slightly different formats, whether or not that's transformative is wildly up in the air. In some cases, it clearly is transforming. But the New York Times has all those examples where the the robot just spits it back verbatim. It's not transforming. And so you can sort of see like the New York Times is trying to preempt that transformativeness debate. They're like, yeah, like you like if it's spitting it out verbatim, how much transforming is actually going on in here? You get kind of like an almost circular argument there where it's like if it's not doing it verbatim in some cases, then when it is doing it verbatim, it's still transformative because that like whatever internal guts are happening in there, like it's like clearly changing things just because we got like a a one-off like verbatim quote, surely that means it's like, it's still okay. It's a weird one. Yeah. And we'll just point out to the audience, we're already in the middle of like a deeply existential debate on the very nature of how AI systems work and whether they are transforming the source text. We're at the first factor. We haven't even made it yeah. out of the first one. There's three more to go, and they're all, they're all like this, and some of them are even wonkier. This is what, when I say it's a coin flip. Like, this is what I mean. Like, I I feel like Sarah and I could just sit here debating whether or not AI is transformative for the rest of the show and not reach a conclusion. And it's not us who's deciding it in the end. It's a bunch of judges. And I don't know what they're going to think. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, Sarah and I will start diving into the other three factors in a fair use case. Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. It's all over the internet. AI this, AI that. Your friend is turning his cat into a Monet painting. Your coworker used a chatbot to write a sonnet about pancakes. AI isn't the stuff of science fiction anymore, but it's also more than the gimmicks we see on a day-to-day basis. If you're a business owner, AI can offer real solutions to help you scale and innovate. It might be time to check out SAP Business AI. SAP Business AI can help you automate repetitive tasks, optimize inventory management and supply chain analysis, and identify opportunities for growth in your operations. SAP Business AI can help you with finance, sales, marketing, human resources, procurement, supply chain, and so much more. Like guarding against fraud with AI-assisted anomaly detection, or receive data-driven prescriptive guidance at critical decision points. They even have a generative AI roadmap to help you discover upcoming and cutting-edge innovations for your business. Who knows what innovations are around the corner? Revolutionary technology? Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI. Welcome back. We were just talking about factor one of the fair use test, which is purpose and character of the use. And we've talked about the idea that some copies are transformative. They take the original work and they turn them into something else. That is majorly up for debate in the case of a generative AI system like ChatGPT. The second fair use factor is the nature of the work. Is it widely available? Is it a secret? Is it stashed away and you've copied and you've given it to everyone else? How does nature of the work play out in these cases? Some things are considered like a little more in the purview of copyright than others. So like, you know, art, plays, that kind of thing, you know, creative works, that's much more like valuable than say the 
the sequence structure and organization of Java, the language, <laughs> right? Like, so, which is, by the way, copyrightable, but it's like kind of a little bit less copyrightable, like on yeah. the down low than the other stuff. Cause it's weird. It's just a weird thing that you don't really want to be like, oh yeah, this is clearly what the founding fathers wanted us to protect with uh, copyright the law. I always think of nature of the work is how the judge feels about yeah. it. Like it, yeah. it's just up for whatever it is. It's like, how, how do I feel about the song pretty woman? Is it important that I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to turn up the dial on this one and say, you've got to overcome it a lot. Is it, is it a list of APIs in a spreadsheet in order? I'll turn the dial down a little bit. Cause that seems pretty silly. And that as far as I can tell is how this one gets assessed. It feels like the entire contents of the New York Times archive might get the I, – I feel like this is pretty important waiting. It's hard to know. I think the dial's kind of in the middle on this one because on the one hand, it's you know the kind of creativity that you want to incentivize. But on the other hand, it's like full of facts. And when it comes to like facts and history, like you don't – like facts themselves aren't copyrightable, right? And like you don't want to like put a big fence around the first draft of history essentially. So – I think it does end up sort of in the middle there. The part of the nature of the work factor that I think is also a bit of a coin flip here is how widely available something is. So the New York Times yeah. thinks of itself as the news, right? It has a very high self-regard and it thinks of itself as pervasive and it, it is the first draft of history in all the ways the Times thinks about itself. It is also famously behind a paywall. It's a thing you have to pay for. You have to pay a lot of money for it. They can mail you pieces of paper, which is a very interesting way of receiving the news. There's a tension there, right? And it, the tension is in the complaint. They're saying, look, ChatGPT lets people get past the paywall. It's this thing you have to pay for and you can pay someone else to get it for free. The argument is you're reducing the market for the New York Times. How do you think those two things square? Yeah, like ChatGPT letting you get around the New York Times paywall and the New York Times being paywalled in the first place, that does seem to to run in the favor of the New York Times and against open AI. Yeah. Um, and again, I will tell the audience, you can see how complicated this is from the jump. This is not, there's nothing deterministic about this analysis. At every point, you can have a pretty existential argument. But to me, it, the nature of the work, it is the least deterministic because if the judge decides that they don't like the New York Times that day, they can just turn the knob down and say something like, the news is the news. It's not a, it's not a poem like you, everyone has the news. If OpenAI didn't steal it from the New York Times, they would take it from the AP and it's the same news. And like, that is a thing that they could logically say here to devalue this factor. Yes, it, they, they could say that. We're about to get into the third and fourth various factors. And one thing we're going to talk a lot about is Google, specifically Google Books. 20 years ago in 2004, Google said it wanted to scan and make searchable all of the books in some research libraries. The copyright holders, authors and publishers, said, no, you can't do that, and they filed copyright lawsuits. It took nearly a decade, but the case was finally resolved in Google's favor in 2015. A federal appeals court held that turning books into search snippets was fundamentally transformative of the original work, there's factor one, and said that even though Google had scraped the entirety of the books and made a profit from offering its services, it was not hurting the market for the original books. That's where factors three and four come in. Factor three in the analysis is how much of the work was used. 
This one it might be the most obvious one on its face, which is if it's all of it, it's bad. If it's as little as possible, it's good. Is there any nuance to this one? I actually do think there's a little bit of nuance to this one. This is where the Google Books cases, I think, mm-hmm. sort of cut in in favor of OpenAI, where like, yes, they're taking 100% of the New York Times, like as much of the New York Times as they can get, yes. But like what's spitting out is small in comparison to what they're taking. And so like, the fact that they've taken everything is sort of minimized in the Google Books cases, for instance, where they're like, yeah, they had to read everything, but because a robot was doing all of the reading, that means a lot less, if that makes sense. Like the human literate part of the copying is what's important here, is sort of, I think, the upshot of like those cases. And so... Here, I think it's a little bit more mitigated for uh, OpenAI. So even though OpenAI has taken everything, the fact that it's literally not, everything, literally everything, the fact that it's not sort of immediately available yes. kind of diminishes this factor. Yes. That's fascinating. I, I, I honestly wonder if that argument will be made well and if the judges will accept it well. Given that the main thing that AI companies have to do using this data is train on it, right? Google Books is like we made an index of all the books and we can show you parts of the index and then kick you out to buying a book. Open ads, like we copied everything. We trained a model on it. And we, we might have even thrown away the, da- the database of copies that we made. And now the model can just go converse. And it's like you had to take all of the stuff to train the model. And that, that just seems like very complicated to me because there is a little bit of technical nuance to how a- AI models work that requires all the stuff, even if all the stuff isn't out in the world or exposed to the user. I mean, that's also how search engines work, right? Like, it's like you have to have all the stuff in order to be able to search it. I mean, the technology is subtly different. How the technology is being used is subtly different. The other part of it that no one wants to, like, really even think about or hear about is that the Google Books cases, we don't have a Supreme Court decision out of them. Like, the important bits come out of the appellate courts. And it's been 10 years, so it's like well, almost 10 years. So it's like you're, we've seen a shift in how copyright, especially fair use, is being addressed by the Supreme Court. It's a completely different court. <laughs> and, like We could get something very strange out of this that is unexpected. Let's talk about the fourth factor here, which feels like the most important one in this case, and often feels like the most important one in any fair use case, the effect of your copy on the market for the original work. I make a song, it samples your song. The sample is de minimis in some way. It's just like background noise. My song is really popular. That doesn't mean people are going to listen to my song instead of listening to the original. And in fact, it might mean that people love the sample so much that sales of the original song go up. So you've had some impact on the market. It could be positive or negative or nothing. And we're going to try to figure that out. And if it's positive or nothing, maybe that use is fair. If I have taken so much of your stuff and replaced your work with it and your market goes down and your sales go down, that's negative. That's going to cut against fair use. I don't know how to evaluate that in the case of AI at all. It feels like they're erasing the market for all human generated content in the world. But then I use the tools and I'm like, I I think I I think I still have something to say here. I I mean, I actually think that the fourth factor is really, really against open AI. And I think that it's because of the Warhol case. 
So we have this case where you can get like an Andy Warhol style portrait of Prince, where, you know, you've got the famous like Marilyn Monroe like thing where it's like the cutouts and the the choppy like print thing. So a magazine thinks about putting a picture, like a photo of Prince on their cover. And they're like, no, everyone's going to put a photo of Prince on their cover after he died. Let's get an Andy Warhol style thing instead from the Andy Warhol Foundation. So they like make a portrait of, of Prince in the style of Andy Warhol. And the base that they use is a photograph that someone else took. They do not license the photograph. And the person who took the photograph is the kind of person whose photographs get licensed to be put on the cover of magazines. And the court basically just goes, look, you like snapped up an opportunity that this person theoretically had. Andy Warhol Foundation is like, no, this is like, it's not the thing. They didn't want a photograph. They wanted Andy Warhol. They're like, yeah, but it's like the same market. It's about the same, (laughs) right? I don't think that there's been a Supreme Court case that emphasized factor four that heavily before. And it's, I think, like sort of a warning shot actually for these new technologies. I don't know if they had the new technologies in mind, but like definitely this is not something we've seen out of courts before is, is that heavy of an emphasis on factor four. One thing that's interesting about that note on factor four, which is the economic factor, you could call it, is that Mm -hmm. in the time since you and I graduated from law school and now there is a movement called law and economics in the law that really emphasizes these ideas. Like the law should be measurable. We can apply economic thinking to it. That was not so much in vogue when the Napster cases were getting decided, or the Grokster cases were getting decided. And so now you have this other fair use thing where it's like, is a painting replacing the market for a photo? And the judges are like, we can do some economic thinking here and we're going to prove it by saying, yes, there is a market for, for depictions of prints. And this painting can serve that market as well as the photograph, which sounds ridiculous. But I think in a case of OpenAI, becomes like the economics of it actually become pretty direct, right? You're like there is a market for information or writing or what books and this robot for 20 bucks a month can just substitute for users all of the other kinds of products that they might otherwise buy. Again, I, I think there's – there's complexity here because I actually don't think the GPTs right now, like GPT-4, can't actually do the work. Like it's not quite good enough. So you have to pull your mind ahead to where it obviously will be good enough in the future. But right now, it, it's I wonder if the difference between what it can do right now and what it might do will weigh into this analysis. You were putting OpenAI in the position of going like, our shit's not that good. <laughs> so you can't sue us because our- I mean, like, any big company will, will argue that it is a piece of crap if that is legally advantageous. I mean, like, yeah, but it's it's it, that's where they're going to have to go in order to to make Factor 4 work with them, right? It's just like, oh, yeah, we're not that great. We actually suck. And we're <laughs> always going to suck. Like, therefore, we will never impact the the commercial value of this work. I actually don't know if they're going to they're gonna be willing to go, go that far because it's a bit much. I straight up think that they are going to have to really minimize factor four as much as they can and just like talk around it and like try to really push their case on on the other factors. I think factor four is like, that's a rough one for them. I think it's especially rough given that like the most recent fair use case we have out of SCOTUS is a factor four case. Like... I think that might be the biggest sign to me that we're headed towards an extinction level event. 
We have to take another quick break. We'll be right back. Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. It's all over the internet. AI this, AI that. Your friend is turning his cat into a Monet painting. Your coworker used a chatbot to write a sonnet about pancakes. AI isn't the stuff of science fiction anymore, but it's also more than the gimmicks we see on a day-to-day basis. If you're a business owner, AI can offer real solutions to help you scale and innovate. It might be time to check out SAP Business AI. SAP Business AI can help you automate repetitive tasks, optimize inventory management and supply chain analysis, and identify opportunities for growth in your operations. SAP Business AI can help you with finance, sales, marketing, human resources, procurement, supply chain, and so much more. Like guarding against fraud with AI-assisted anomaly detection, or receive data-driven prescriptive guidance at critical decision points. They even have a generative AI roadmap to help you discover upcoming and cutting-edge innovations for your business. Who knows what innovations are around the corner? Revolutionary technology? Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI. We're back. I'm talking about fair use with Verge Features Editor Sarah Jong. We've talked about what the four factors in a fair use case are, but that leaves us with a really big question. How is this all going to play out for the AI companies? I often use the blurred lines case oh, as no. an example <laughs> of how much of a coin flip all of this is. The estate of Marvin Gaye and Pharrell Williams get into a dispute. The estate of Marvin Gaye wins, even though there's no copying in that song at all, which is still crazy to me. Later on, the estate of Marvin Gaye goes after Ed Sheeran. There is actual musical similarity in the two songs there. But Ed Sheeran takes the stand. He's very sympathetic. He says, this is the death of all music. And the jury agrees with him and he wins. Total coin flip. Like the facts actually in both cases were the opposite of what they needed to be for the outcomes in my opinion. But they are straightforward fair use analyses. Why do you think that's applicable or not applicable in the case of OpenAI? I don't think it's applicable. The thing about the Blurred Lines case, it's like a, it's a case about vibes, right? Yeah. Does this song vibe with Marvin Gaye? And is that infringement? It's just such a terrible case. Yeah, like it's, it's like really it is bad. kind of, yeah, it's a really terrible. I mean, it's a good example of the fact of like, this is why you never want to go to trial for literally <laughs> anything. The court is random, right? The jury is random and the decision is random. And then eventually you end up in an appellate court with a bunch of unelected weirdos. And they're extraordinarily random lately. This is why the CEOs think it's just going to be some money. Right. Because they're going to say, look, I don't want to go to trial. I doubt the New York Times wants to go to trial. Like, we'll just pay you a bunch of money and you'll go away and we'll build our businesses under a legal regime that exists now. Yeah. Getty, The Times, the media authors, basically everyone who works in a creative industry is very mad and very concerned. And they've seen sort of their bottom line eaten away by big tech. And this is like no longer an era where. You go, oh, well, we can form these partnerships with these companies and it'll work out for us in the long run. Like people are tired of having, getting their backs stabbed, essentially. Like that's sort of the perception, I think. I think that like there is an appetite to take this all the way to the end rather than give in and let things blow up the future. And like whether or not that's like a warranted feeling, I don't know, maybe, (laughs) but it's like there's. The feeling is just different. So you you don't think there are settlements here? If you have nothing to lose, then of course go to trial, right? If you have literally nothing to lose. And I think like we've sort of hit the wall where you go, 
oh, either we go to court and we destroy copyright law forever, maybe. Yeah. Or we lose everything. Right. Like, it's, I think that we're like running up against the wall where people are sort of, sort of like, oh, it's not just that the robots are going to take our jobs. The robots are going to take like the future literacy of humanity. Like, it's like people are starting to spin up these visions of the future that are increasingly apocalyptic. And I think that there's like an appetite to take this to the end. So I want to end there on kind of a big think. This is an idea that I have ruthlessly stolen from you over the years. It's the idea that copyright law is the only real limiting regulation on the internet because it's the only thing that can consistently get things taken down. Like everything else aside from child pornography and sex trafficking to some degree even, it's those two things and copyright law. And those are the regulating factors on the internet. Those are the things that you can send a letter and something you hit down if you claim it's copyright infringement. And then you have this chaotic fair use argument happening in the background. Like the exit ramp is supposed to be really flexible and, you know, lend itself to these kinds of existential arguments that might go either way in front of a court. Entire industries might live or die depending on how people are feeling that day about the nature of the New York Times. Is this working? Like I – is this the right way to go about it? Because it's, it's what we've been doing for a long time. And I, I still don't know if we've made any of the correct policy choices using copyright laws, our only real tool. I think it's a terrible tool to regulate speech. It, it's clearly not working out, I think, in the context of like, you know, individual creators. Like we, we've set up just a very bizarre kangaroo court system, essentially, through platforms. Everyone is familiar with the idea of copyright strikes and DMCA, and everyone sort of knows that it like it's a lot of BS and doesn't work super well, doesn't make a ton of sense, and it's weaponized. That said, it's like when you're looking at sort of the changes that are coming to the culture through generative AI and what that poses for society and for the way we live and, you know, all kinds of things like how do we learn in schools, right? <laughs> the nature of creativity itself, the value of literature and art. I like don't even know what how to quantify the changes that are coming down the pipeline or what to do to address them. And historically, when you're looking at a technology that's about to blow up culture itself, bring in the copyright, actually. <laughs> like, right? Like it's like the printing press shows up, you bring in sort of proto-copyright, like the the stationer's monopoly. Right. Like you, you bring in something like copyright. Does it work super well? Is it a good thing? I don't know. Kind of <laughs> not, not totally. I'm not 100% on board, but like, yeah, like traditionally what we do when technology is about to blow up culture is we bring on something like copyright. And so like, I, I don't know if that's the right tool for this because I don't even know if we really understand what generative AI is about to do to us. But I think it does make sense to me that it's shown up at this time as sort of the front line. Does it make sense that it's shown up to you as sort of an extinction level event for these companies? It makes sense to me in like a, oh, yes, this is Chekhov's gun, right, moment, right? Like it makes sense in like, oh, yes, this was, this was the destiny of copyright law and the destiny of generative AI. But will it be a good tool? About as good as anything else, I think. It's like not great. It's not super good, but like if I run my head through anything else that we've got on the books, I don't think that there's 
like something where I'm like, oh yeah, this isn't a copyright thing. This is a something else thing. There's one I can, there's one I can think of actually. Yeah? And this is a, this is a hint towards our next episode. Yeah. Uh, deep fakes. There's no copies. There's some, there's a copy somewhere in the, the model, but then you, you're looking at the deep fake of Taylor Swift or Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whoever. And it, it's not a copy of anything. So if those characters want to show up and say, take this down, they have to use some other tool because they can't just go to copyright law and say that you're not authorized to use that photo of me. The way that, I don't know, even celebrity revenge porn gets taken down because they own the copyrights, the underlying images that get stolen. Like there's something else that needs to happen for in particular deep fakes that I don't think that we have an answer to yet either. It's like, I don't know, we've had senators on the show proposing new causes of action around around likenesses, which just gets to it gets to other weird places. But it's like everyone will have the same rights as any celebrity to endorse or not endorse Twitter. And it's like that is really weird. But it feels like we're going to need that for the deep fake problem. Yeah, that problem is just another rat's nest because it makes copyright look easy. Because like once you get into sort of the deep fake problem and likenesses, Oh man, like you think copyright sucks? Wait until you get to the right of publicity slash the right of privacy, which is the same thing depending on which state you're in. Amazing. Well, that's a big hint towards our next episode. I got to ask you though, just to wrap this one up, how do you think New York Times versus OpenAI is going to play out? Oh, why would you ask me that? Like it's, (laughs) you're, you're basically just setting me up for like whatever I answer is the wrong thing. I think that this is one of those things where I think the most you can really hope for is that whatever comes out doesn't damage copyright law in a way that makes it unworkable. Like that is like the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario isn't actually that generative AI gets banned forever or that it gets a green light forever. The worst case is that copyright law changes in a way that's unworkable. I really do feel like the the tension you've identified with the CEOs of these companies continuing to make huge investments is that they feel they can solve the problem with money. And I think the tension is you you actually have to solve the problem. My prediction is that if the Times notches a big early victory, OpenAI will just throw money at the Times and make it go away, right? They will just throw money until the Times says, fine, we'll do a 10-year deal. But that doesn't stop the Authors Guild, and that doesn't stop Getty, and then suddenly it becomes too costly to run. I think that first case, the trial case – actually determines a lot of what happens next because if the authors win there, the creators win in any of those early cases, the entire AI industry is going to light up with settlement offers and then the prices are just going to rise and maybe that will determine what happens next. But if the AI companies win first, I do think it's existential for all these creative companies and they are going to fight tooth and nail until they do get in front of a Supreme Court and then all bets are off. And there's also the sort of thing where some of these companies have a worse case than the others. So what, whichever ends up in front of a court first is also going to be interesting, I think. Some of these companies have, have played fast and loose with copyright a little more than others. And you're right that the first test bullet, like the first trial balloon is going to determine a lot of what happens next. Thanks again to Verge Features Editor Sarah Jong for joining us on the show. I hope you can tell Sarah and I love talking about this stuff. That was a lot of fun. From now on, we're going to keep bringing you second episodes of Decoder every Thursday to deliver more analysis and storytelling like this, in addition to our classic regular weekly interviews with CEOs, lawmakers, and other troublemakers. Stay tuned for parts two and three of our AI series over the coming weeks. 
you have thoughts about this episode or what you'd like to hear us talk about more, you can email us at decoder at theverge.com. We really do read every email. You can also hit me up directly on threads. I'm at reckless1280. We also have a TikTok. You can check it out. It's at decoderpod. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. I would love a five-star review for these second episodes, by the way. I'm just saying that out loud. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Kate Cox and Nick Statt. It was edited by Callie Wright. Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time. Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. Imagine the most tedious task you have at work. Is it making all those manual adjustments to your weekly spending reports? Or sending essentially the same emails over and over again? If you're looking for ways to innovate your business, it might be time to consider SAP Business AI. With dozens of potential integrations to optimize sales, procurement, finance, human resources, and more, SAP Business AI may be able to improve your business operations inside and out. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI.